Revolutions Permitted is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. Recorded live at WBAI 99.5 in Brooklyn every Wednesday at 9 p.m. RPM's about doing the work. The work to build a democratic socialist future. Each week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in New York City. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. Hey, New York City. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute, live from the new WBAI Studios, a socialist radio show and podcast from members of New York City Democratic Socialists of America. The Democratic Socialist of America is the largest socialist organization in the United States with 90,000 members nationwide, and New York City DSA is its biggest chapter. We are run by our 7,000-plus members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. I'm Lee Zishi. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm joining you from occupied Lenape land in Brooklyn. And yesterday, March 2nd, New York City DSA issued a statement calling for New York State Governor Andrew Cuomo to resign or face impeachment. This comes in the wake of weeks of political turmoil regarding Cuomo's cover-up of nursing home deaths due to COVID and new testimony about his gendered workplace abuse. The organized left in New York State has known for a long time that Andrew Cuomo is far from a resistance hero as the liberal media has cast him. On tonight's show, we'll hear from RPM correspondent Michael Carter and Alexandra Walling of the Socialist Feminist Working Group on Cuomo's persistent disregard for the lives of working-class New Yorkers and what this means for our socialist movement. We also check in with New York City DSA's newly elected Assembly member, Marcella Matenez of Assembly District 51 on her first weeks in Albany and our fight to tax the rich and invest in our New York. But first, the headlines with Simone Norman. Lindsay Boylan, a former Albany staffer who in December accused Governor Cuomo of sexually harassing her, published a Medium post backed up with emails and screenshots and including specific allegations, including that he kissed her without consent and suggested she play strip poker with him. Since Boylan's Medium post, another Cuomo aide has come forward with allegations of sexual harassment. State legislators want an investigation into the allegations against Cuomo, but want to ensure the process is independent, unlike previous ethics investigations that the governor has quashed. After two former aides accused Governor Cuomo of sexual harassment, he tried to control the investigation, first proposing an independent investigation by a former judge with ties to the governor. And then when that idea was poorly received, an investigation led by someone chosen jointly by the state attorney general and chief judge of the Court of the Appeals. State Attorney General Letitia James rejected that proposal and asked Cuomo to officially refer the matter to her office. A new poll found that Governor Andrew Cuomo's approval ratings have dropped some in the wake of his administration's decision to withhold data about COVID deaths in nursing homes. However, his approval rating remains substantially higher than pre-pandemic levels. The poll was conducted before the latest harassment allegations. During last year's budget negotiations, Cuomo received over $126,000 in donations from groups protected by the liability shield he inserted into the final package. 
the developer behind the proposed Crown Heights Towers that would overshadow parts of the Brooklyn Botanical Garden, has put forward alternative plans featuring shorter buildings, but even fewer or no affordable housing units. NYC Schools Chancellor Richard Carranza is resigning, effective March 15th, to be replaced by Bronx Superintendent Misha Porter. Despite the NYPD's Civilian Complaint Review Board substantiating a charge that Detective Fabio Nunez used an illegal chokehold, Nunez has not faced any discipline by the department, highlighting the impunity officers have to disregard any supposed checks on that department. Employees at tech company Glitch have officially unionized with the Communications Workers of America, making the first agreement between management and a white-collar tech union in the United States. The company will be required to rehire 18 people laid off in May if it plans to rehire for the positions. And in election news, a state Supreme Court judge threw out the court case challenging the candidate petitioning process, meaning that petitioning will likely go forward as planned. Petitioning is the necessary campaign work in which candidates must collect signatures from a minimum number of registered voters in order to appear on a ballot. Our headlines are brought to you by The Thorn, an incredible weekly newsletter by New York City DSA Electoral Working Group covering local politics and radical radical activism. You can subscribe at thethorn.nyc. And if you're a regular listener of Revolutions Per Minute, you know that we've been speaking with each of our newly elected socialist state legislators on their first days in Albany and New York City's DSA's ongoing campaign to tax the rich and invest in working-class New York. Tonight, we're welcoming Assemblymember Marcela Matenez back to the show. For that interview, let's go to Jack Devine. Thank you so much for joining us. We're we're here with uh, New York Assemblywoman from the 51st District, Marcela Matenez. Um, I want to thank you so much for joining us, uh, Marcela. You are a, one of the uh, New York City uh, Democratic Socialists um, elected, who's part of the slate up there in Albany. Uh, you are one of the the newer members, uh, and it's we're really really excited to have you back on Revolutions Per Minute. We got to speak with you uh, during your campaign in the spring, and now we're going to be um, hearing about your kind of new experience as an elected um, assemblywoman up in Albany. So, how are you adjusting uh, to this new role? Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's definitely different. Just the introductions themselves and just, you know, uh, this new title that I have, just I'm, I'm still like in shock <laughs> um, of where I came from and where I'm at. And, and, you know, just even now, just the things that I'm involved in, the things that I'm doing. Um, Albany has been a huge, um, change in priority now in life. Uh, one of my, uh, fellow colleagues was very clear when they said this wasn't a new job, this is a new lifestyle. Um, and that's definitely true, uh, being on call for community emergencies, uh, things that are happening in the news that are, that happen quite frequently or just new things that are coming up. And then just at this moment in time is something that I heard so much. Uh, through work, working in different campaigns. And this is where, you know, legislators are really getting into the nitty gritty and starting to um, talk about the budget. Yeah, they really throw you in right away with these budget negotiations happening within the first couple months 
um, that you're in office. So that must be a, an intense experience. And we'd love to kind of, uh, at, at some point in the future, dive into the specifics of being a, a socialist and organizer elected official that is so distinct from uh, how many other um, representatives in this uh, capital society uh, deal with being in office. And uh, hopefully we can have you back on to discuss this. But uh, today we're going to be focusing on the really crucial uh, tax the rich campaign. So how has your experience um, as an organizer shaped your approach um, to the tax the rich campaign? Why is it so important that we pass this set of bills? How will these bills chip away power from capital? And in what way is the le- will the le- legislation empower the working class? I think it's important to understand that communities like mine that have been ignored for many years have been put in a very um, precarious situation. Over the years, what, what it's done to our community, the lack of funding, to then have to confront this pandemic the way that we have, it's really disproportionately affected working class, poor Black and brown New Yorkers, immigrants. You know, we've borne the brunt of the sickness. And on top of that, we're dealing with job losses. We're facing evictions. Um, a lot of folks just don't have access to health insurance. Their jobs just don't provide that or they're part of the, the cash economy. And it's, it's really highlighted the food insecurities, particularly in Sunset Park and in Red Hook. We're seeing the lines just getting longer and longer the more this takes time. And I think it's really important to understand that our government has failed us under the leadership of this governor in particular. We've had 10 years of austerity budgets that are being passed. And again, we're being confronted at a time that we're in a pandemic. You know, we're being told that they're proposing cuts to to education. You know, so these are things that we cannot idly allow to happen. And I'm so excited to be part in the Invest in Our New York campaign that really proposes six revenue raisers that will not just provide revenues at this moment that's so desperately needed, but we need to look at long-term as well. I know there's some folks that are saying, you know, we're waiting for the federal government to give us money. Yes, we are. But as a state, we have an obligation to the people here to also think about what we're going to do long-term. What the federal government gives us is not going to be enough. And then we have to think about the future. And it really is um, about making a huge shift in power where we're educating and empowering working class folks to really understand and become more civically engaged, to have a better understanding of the way their government works, and to really participate. And when we do that, we're sending a huge message, particularly to the, you know, to this capitalist society that this is not okay. I understand that people are using their money to buy properties, and so therefore there should be, they have a right to determine how and, and, you know, how they're going to create incomes. But when it, when you start talking about the fact that people are making money by evicting people, working class people, um, out on the street, there's just something ethically wrong with that. Um, and so at this moment in time, We are in a very important place where we must stand up and we must fight back to think that this governor was okay with making deductions to the Medicaid program, which is something that the poor really depend on during the pandemic and wants to continue to do budget cuts. It's just, it's, it's not okay. 
Yeah, I think you you highlight something that's uh, really important to understand, and that this the situation that we're living through, where you know millions of New Yorkers are on the brink of eviction, dealing with food insecurity, just struggling to get by every day, at risk if they get any sort of injury or have to deal with a sort a disease that they could be put into immense medical debt because they don't have. Um, health insurance, that this is something that is man-made and has been caused and produced by the uh, ruling class in this state. And Cuomo, who is their representative, who has been uh, putting out these austerity budgets uh, for the past decade, and and really uh, austerity that has been implemented in this state since the 70s, that has made this horrible pandemic so, so much worse. It has exacerbated everything and has led to the deaths of um, tens of thousands of people, at least. So I think I just want to note how you really lay out the that this, this power differential really causes um, catastrophe in people's lives. And so the, and I think that is what makes these, these bills so important that we can correct this, we can fight back and we can empower people and give them the resources that they need to survive and thrive. Um, and you've been a tenant organizer in Brooklyn, which is kind of another way of building power rather than kind of shifting the legislation. It's about building power in the community that can kind of fight back against their landlords, builds and institutions that can build a broader movement. And so how has this experience like informed how you're, you're approaching, uh, one, this specific, uh, invest in New York act, but really more like what sort of housing policy will the new resources enable and how does this campaign um, and legislation shift the balance of power between landlords and tenants? Yeah. So what we're talking about is is some of the stuff that you you touched on, right? This is this is years of austerity, and in particular, what we're asking in order to protect the future of New York is to end the tax breaks that the wealthiest New Yorkers have been receiving for years. And so some of what we're trying to get is simple things, things that we feel that folks urgently need now in order to be able to get out of this pandemic and really have like a clean slate to be able to start over because that's where we're at. So we're talking about an Emergency Housing Stability and Displacement Prevention Act, and it's going to put in place a universal eviction moratorium for residential and commercial tenants that would begin on March 7th and would last for the duration of the crisis plus an additional year. So we have one currently, but it's going to expire soon. This would prevent landlords from filing a possessory or a money judgment in housing court. So that's step one, is making sure that folks don't get evicted. The second is a rent and a mortgage cancellation act. And what that does, it is it's going to forgive the rent and the rent debt for tenants, again, starting at the pandemic from March 7th through the end of the crisis, plus an additional 90 days. We want to also make sure that we are protecting our small landlords who provide affordable housing, who depend on their tenants for the rent that they pay for their mortgages. So we want to forgive mortgages for small homeowners, again, starting March 7th to the end of the emergency, plus an additional 90 days. Small homeowners are built, we're talking about buildings with six units or less, and that it serves at the owner's primary residency. What we've seen in prior years that there's been emergencies is we've seen corporations 
tap into the assistance that's supposed to be for everyday working folks. And lastly, we want to provide a housing access voucher program. So what that is, is a rental subsidy at the state level. Currently, there's a rental subsidy at the federal level and there's rental subsidies at the city level. Both are very antiquated. The amount of rent that they help for is low. The uh, rent amounts that you have to use to qualify are also outdated with the market rates that we have. It's not enough. So providing some rental assistance at the state level would make a huge change. So these are some of the things we're talking about investing, particularly when it comes to housing. Listen, this is something that nobody expected and nobody should lose their home for something that was out of their control. This is the least that we can do is make sure that everyone can stay put. This is also a way that we're going to heal. People cannot self-isolate if they don't have a home. And we want to ensure that we're bringing stability to our communities so that we can then provide assistance and help to be able to get out of this pandemic. Even if everything is over tomorrow, we're still going to need time to help folks get back on their feet. And the way we do this is by educating folks. But it's also important for folks to understand. And as working class people, we just don't have the time sometimes. But it's crucial now to understand the different levels of government, the powers that they have, and how they can actually intervene to make life a little bit better for us instead of giving us our austerity budgets and putting us in a position where there's really no hope for survival. Yeah, I think you made a really great point there and that it would be absurd and depraved to be tossing, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even millions of people out in the streets because of this pandemic that completely upended everyone's lives. And it's it's no one's fault really ever, I think, when they get evicted, there's always social circumstances, but this is a, a particular uh, situation in which it is extremely absurd and depraved uh, and barbaric to be tossing people out in the street. Um, and just uh, before we, we let you go, I just uh, kind of want to build off this conversation in the sense that these are the sort of em- emergency measures that need to be taken in, in this crisis and really to prevent the crisis being, another, as you said, another moment in which big capital and uh, corporations take advantage of it to build even more power. But what's kind of a long-term vision um, for socialist housing um, that you have? And and just any other final remarks uh, before we let you go? So as socialists, we believe that housing is a human right. And at the end of the day, what capitalism has done is just commodified it. Everyone has a right to housing. And, you know, we'd like to be able to get to that point where we can also invest and build in social housing, where we're coming together, where no one's making a profit, but that we're taking care of each other. And at the end of the day, that's what it means to be a socialist. We all participate in the decision-making. We all participate in uh, the benefits. And then we all are actually equal. And that is something that it's going to take us some time to get to. I think socialist has become a dirty word. So there needs to be education on what that means as well. Um, but most importantly, I think that what we're really trying to do in building this movement with working class is having folks understand and be able to see the individual power that each one of us possess and what can happen and what we can accomplish when we decide to bring our power together. So Social housing is definitely 
um, the goal, but it's going to take us some time to get there. And in the meantime, there are these measures that we can implement as we continue to grow our movement and our understanding of what we want our better life to look like. Yeah, that that's a, a really beautiful way of, of framing it, the, the, the collective power to transform our society. Uh, is really at the root of what socialist politics is all about. I just want to thank you so much for uh, joining us, Marcella. We are going to keep our listeners updated on you up in Albany, on the the tenants movement here in New York, the struggle for working class power and for social housing, and the the tax the rich, the campaign, and uh, invest in New York legislation specifically. So I just want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. Today, we're talking about the urgent need for a change in leadership at the top of New York State's governance and for a new style of politics that centers the working class. Uh, We're going to open up the phone lines at the end of the show as usual, But before we continue on to the second half of the show, uh, we do have a chance to hear from one listener with a thought or comment right now, Um, one or two listeners. So please give us a call at 212-209-2877. Again, that number is 212-209-2877. And as ever, we encourage you to support the station that makes shows like this possible and brings you consistent coverage of New York local politics from the perspective of the multiracial working class. You know, we have been um, holding Governor Cuomo accountable on the show for a very long time. Um, And uh, so please support a station that that does that. You can um, give to the station by calling at 516 620 or you can go to wbai.org and give in the name of Revolutions Per Minute. Um, again, if you'd like to call in right now, um, give your per, your thoughts on Governor Cuomo, um, on taxing the rich, um, that number is 212-209-2877. And while we're waiting for... Um, somebody to call in. I'm going to introduce um, our guest for the second half of the show, uh, Michael Carter. Welcome back, as always, to RPM. Thanks so much, Lee. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, I'm going to just give the number out one more time for our callers if you want to try to call in. If not, we will be opening up the phone lines later. It's 212-209-2877. And Michael, thanks so much for being here. Um, we're going to dig in very soon um, to a lot of the history of this, but I know you were watching um, Governor Cuomo today. Um, do you have any thoughts about his his press conference now that he's finally speaking to the public? Well, I think he finally earned his Emmy, is what I think. Um, I think that he he was kind of in the classic mode of someone who's been caught in some kind of malfeasance where he um, acts very contrite, attempts to apologize, attempts to sort of make it seem like his pain regarding what has happened is enough punishment. Um, 
And I think it's in a in a bid to keep his power. He was directly asked several times if he would step down, and he said he would not. Um, he seems to sort of believe that he is the only person who can lead us through the rest of this pandemic when, in fact, I would argue he is one of the worst and least qualified and least competent people we could possibly have in charge at this critical time. Yeah, I mean, the actual results, you know, the fact that he wrote this book while so many people were dying, um, his just constant need to pretend to show leadership um, while the actual facts on the ground present something different. You know, I mean, it really has been a gaslighting of really this entire state um, throughout this pandemic. And it's something that, you know, we as organizers have seen um, a lot. You know, if, if you do this kind of work in New York, um, maybe people who haven't seen it outside, you know, might think of Governor Cuomo as this leader, but we've, we've seen this for a very long time. And I'm super excited to, you know, dig in um, a little bit later in the show with you um, on all of that. Um, but before we do, you know, um, as socialists, we do have a lot of critiques of Governor Cuomo from multiple angles. We have covered that on multiple episodes of RPM. Um, it's really important for us to consider as well um, the implications of the testimony that we're hearing from multiple people about his sexually violent workplace misconduct. Um, for more on that, we spoke to Alexandra Walling of the New York City DSA Socialist Feminist Working Group. Let's go to Amy Wilson for that conversation. Hey, what's up, New York City? This is Amy Wilson for Revolutions Per Minute. I'm here with Alexandra from our Socialist Feminist Working Group. Hi, Alexandra. How are you today? Hi. How are you, Amy? I'm glad to be here. Glad to have you. So we're in the middle of a big week in New York state politics. Uh, yesterday, New York City DSA released a statement calling for Andrew Cuomo's impeachment. So tell us, um, tell us about this story from your perspective and some of the developments in the last few weeks and the last few days. So I think what we've seen um, in the last few weeks is, uh, first, we've seen um, increasing critical uh, attention of uh, Governor Cuomo's record in office uh, particularly as pertains to uh, his uh, cover-up of nursing home deaths during the early stages of the pandemic in the spring. And we've seen progressive figures like Ron Kim, uh, in particular, really pressing uh, this line of attack about uh, Cuomo's failings as an elected official. But in the last several days, we have also seen three women come forward with stories of sexual harassment um, at the hands of Governor Cuomo, at the hands of Andrew Cuomo. Um, uh, the first person who came forward, the first woman who came forward was Lindsay Boylan. And I want to note here uh, that Lindsay Boylan actually came forward initially several months ago with a story of having faced sexual harassment while working in government from Andrew Cuomo. But about a week ago, she published a Medium post detailing the kind of harassment she faced, including inappropriate touching, an unwanted kiss, Andrew Cuomo uh, asking her to play strip poker. And this behavior lasted over a number of years. And then a few days later, another woman, Charlotte Bennett, who had also worked for the governor, came forward and detailed having faced inappropriate questions and unwanted sexual attention from the governor. 
And then two days ago, a third woman, Anna Rich, came forward with a story of having faced unwanted touching and an unwanted kiss at a wedding, which the governor attended. And so what we're seeing now is a number of progressive figures, as well as the socialist left, calling on Cuomo to resign or be impeached, particularly because of his sexually harassing behavior, but all of this in the context of his failings as governor. So on this show, this tonight's edition of Revolutions Per Minute, that is exactly what we are focusing in on, his failures as a governor in so many ways. So talk to me a little bit about the emphasis that we're seeing on the sexual harassment piece of that. Uh, What's your political understanding of uh, the, the timing of these scandals, hate to use that word, but the timing of these events and how that relates to the overall picture. Yeah, one of the things that I want to direct attention to is that Lindsay Boylan came forward with stories of having experienced sexual harassment months ago. And when she came forward, Cuomo was still riding high in the national media with this image of him as a resistance hero based on the briefings that he gave in the spring. So there was this image of Andrew Cuomo as a Democratic Party hero, a a liberal hero um, who had stood up to Trump and saved New York during the pandemic. And so when Lindsey Boylan initially came forward, there just wasn't um, a media or a, a political landscape that was willing or able to hear her. Her story sank pretty quickly. And so what we're seeing now is because Cuomo was already weakened by um, these several weeks of attention that had been paid to his cover-up of nursing home deaths and the the legal trouble that he and his administration is in. He's facing uh, legal investigation on that front. Um, Cuomo's image uh, in the media was already tarnished. It was tarnishing. And so I think we saw a, a political landscape that was more ready to hear from the women who came forward than it would have been before. Not because their stories had changed or because they were coming forward with like depths or reams of evidence that they hadn't presented before, but because uh, suddenly Cuomo wasn't this unassailable figure. And I think this is going to be a trend that we are going to see with um, allegations of sexual harassment, sexual violence, other forms of sexual misconduct going forward. The media is going to be pretty selective. It's going to play pick and choose about which stories it takes seriously and which stories it doesn't. You know, we can compare this to uh, the treatment of Tara Reid in the spring, where she came forward with considerable corroborating evidence in the form of statements from people who had known her at the time. There was video of her mother speaking to Larry King in the 1990s about her daughter's experiences with Joe Biden. But the story uh, sank um, in part because the media focused on Tara Reid's credibility rather than uh, the evidence that supported her because Joe Biden was riding high. He was on the ascendant. Um, And so I think And this is a a terrible thing that uh, people considering coming forward with stories of sexual harassment are going to face in the future, uh, is uh, having to judge uh, whether your story is likely to be heard based on the popularity of the figure that uh, you're considering speaking out against. Mm -hmm. 
So other than smashing the patriarchy entirely, which of course is our end goal, as an intermediate steps, what would be your recommendations, Alexandra, for the socialist movement to fully address sexual violence? And what do you see, you've spoken to this a little bit already in terms of the issues of timing and credibility, but what do you see as the limitations of the current organized response that we have? So when we think about the Me Too movement, uh, which really took off in the fall of 2017 and is now facing considerable backlash. I mean, the Me Too movement faced backlash almost from the beginning, but we're in a considerable stage of backlash now. Um, when the Me Too movement really took off as this popular force spurred on by social media, but also by um, this sort of media frenzy of attention around um, the kinds of sexual violence that women have been facing basically since forever, that people in general have been facing basically since forever. I don't want to make out like sexual violence only affects women. Um, the ability to capitalize on that by an organized anti-violence movement just wasn't there, in part because it, largely because the anti-violence movement has always already been co-opted by um, the state and by the Democratic Party. Uh, institutional anti-violence organizations like domestic violence shelters are largely dependent upon state funding um, through the Violence Against Women Act that was passed as part of the 1994 crime bill, which was, of course, uh, authored by Joe Biden. And Joe Biden ran um, on his support for the Violence Against Women Act as feminist bona fides when he was uh, challenged by Tara Reid for his past misconduct in the spring. And so when you look at these um, institutional actors, while they might have been able to uh, support challenges for Republican figures accused of sexual violence and sexual misconduct, they're, they're not able in any sustained way to challenge um, misconduct on the part of people in the Democratic Party because they are dependent on their funding for their on their existence on the largesse of these Democratic Party figures. So when we think about building an anti-violence movement um, that can stand up for everybody, not just people who are lucky enough to have been victimized by the right people, um, you have to think about building an anti-violence movement that is divorced um, from these kinds of state funds. But we also have to think about like what the anti-violence movement has primarily fought for. And again, it comes back to um, the Violence Against Women Act and the 1994 Crime Bill, which is that uh, existing anti-violence organizations um, have often um, focused on tougher laws or higher sentences or tougher enforcement of existing laws that target people who commit sexual harassment and uh, sexual violence. So the focus is really on punishment. The focus is on the bad actors, people who are causing harm. But there isn't that same focus on helping people who are experiencing violence to heal. Now, there's been research done looking at what are the lifetime costs for somebody who's faced sexual violence or domestic violence. And you're talking about more than $100,000 in lifetime costs that a survivor might face because of lost jobs or lost wages, because of health care bills, because of interrupted education, because of having to move or find new housing, because of child care, because of court costs. All of these costs add up for people who are facing 
harassment and violence. You look at Lindsay Boylan and Charlotte Bennett, and both of them had to leave jobs in order to escape Andrew Cuomo's harassment, right? Um, but the kinds of things that our existing anti-violence movement has fought for hasn't focused on getting compensation for survivors. Now, one of the things that I'm proud to say the socialist feminists in New York City DSA have done has been to champion this issue of material compensation for survivors. Uh, we met with Senator Salazar, with Julia Salazar in the fall, and we spoke with her about the importance of expanding victim compensation funds. Victim compensation funds exist to help survivors of crime get the money that they need to repair their lives. But these victim compensation funds have a couple of flaws. First, the amount of compensation that victims can receive is often very low. It's capped well below those lifetime costs I've mentioned earlier. And second, they require that victims file a police report cooperate with police and prosecutors, do all of this very rapidly after having experienced victimization, and provide reams of evidence about the costs that they've faced in order to get access to money. And these are huge burdens to place on people who are dealing with trauma, who may be dealing with PTSD, and it's also a burden on people who may not want to interact with police or prosecutors because of the violence that police and prosecutors often enact, including sexual violence and sexual misconduct. And so the Social Feminist Working Group has asked Julia Salazar um, to advance legislation that would expand uh, victim compensation funds and that would remove the requirement that uh, survivors of sexual violence go to the police in order to get access to material aid. Thank you. And that's definitely a, a story that we will be keeping our eyes on here at Revolutions Per Minute um, with our comrade, Senator Salazar. Thank you so much, Alexandra, for speaking with me tonight. Um, I wish you the best. Goodbye. Thank you very much. Goodbye. So that was Alexandra of the Socialist Feminist Working Group. Um, and before we get into our conversation with Michael Carter, um, I just wanted to read a tweet that really resonated with me in all this after this really heavy moment um, that was from Assemblymember Emily Gallagher. And she said, you know, the women who have come forward deserve accountability first and foremost, but the governor's abusive behavior also reverberates. It ripped it rips open the wounds of other survivors. It consumes precious time. We could be addressing other crises and it damages us all. Um, so just for everybody who's been listening to that and, and dealing with those issues this week, um, I want you to know Revolutions Per Minute is here for you. And I want you to think about power. And, you know, obviously you've been at the wrong end of an abusive power situation. Um, and together, you know, we can change that. Um, and so, Michael, thank you so much for, for being on um, and bringing your, you know, uh, knowledge of Albany uh, to the show today. Um, you know, obviously, we just heard of a lot of these terrible things that, you know, Governor Cuomo has, has done around gendered harassment. But there's a lot of other reasons people are calling for his resignation. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, um, Andrew Cuomo's record and why um, those of us on the left have been challenging him um, for years? Uh, Andrew Cuomo has made up the um, strongest push towards the right wing in the Democratic Party in New York State for at least the last decade. Um, he bankrolled and helped form the Independent Democratic Conference, which took control of the state Senate away from the Democratic Party, which he is a member of, allegedly. Um, he has... Um, 
created a series of austerity budgets that has gutted our social services, our infrastructure, um, and given giveaways to real estate at every opportunity. Um, he is the governor of the 1% of the billionaire class of the fire elite, as they say, finance and real estate. Um, and he has been able to deliver for that constituency. The constituency that he does not care about um, is honestly everybody else. Uh, the working class people who died in nursing homes under his watch and were never counted by the state. Uh, the the women who work for him and who are responsible for carrying out his will, and, but are not given the basic respect of bodily and kind of mental autonomy. Um, he cannot handle any challenge to his power, no matter how slight. And this is something you can see on every level. When Bill de Blasio said, hey, maybe we should shut down for COVID, uh, because de Blasio said that before Cuomo said that, Cuomo said, no, we're not shutting down. We can't do that. And so he delayed the shutdown by, I believe, a week, um, which if it had gone through, um, we, we have our problems with de Blasio as well, obviously. But if it had gone through, thousands of lives might have been saved. Um, his performance during this pandemic, contrary to the image you get on CNN or MSNBC, or uh, if you're watching the press conferences without any context, has been, in my opinion, disastrous. Um, and the solutions that he brings from a policy perspective, even now, are hugely inadequate to do anything about the social problems that our city and our state face. Um, anyone who's an activist in New York State, anyone who's like a journalist in New York State, has a story about Andrew Cuomo bullying somebody associated with them or bullying them themselves in order to get his way. Um, and it's been an open secret for a long time. Uh, Albany has a long history of this kind of thing. Uh, the uh, Pedro Espada was expelled. A bunch of lawmakers have been either expelled or sent to federal prison for a few different things. One is just run-of-the-mill corruption, which there's a lot of that too with Cuomo. Um, he started a commission to investigate corruption called the Moreland Commission. It got too close to him and he disbanded it. Um, which to me seemed, it was before I was as politically active as I am now. I felt like that should have been a red flag from the start. Um, his aide, Joke Percoco, who was known in the Cuomo family as the third Cuomo brother, is currently sitting in federal prison for bid rigging related to a power plant project in Buffalo. And bid rigging is a word for when essentially government contracts are steered to political uh, donors and politically connected individuals um, at, at, on a preferential basis, be, and which ends up wasting a lot of government money and giving a lot of money to people who may not be qualified for the jobs and the and the projects that they're taking on. Um, as you can see, I've got a, a lot built up here. Uh, and, um, but I also, I also don't want to minimize at all. And I think also it is connected his general conduct 
in the state in terms of policy and his specific conduct in terms of, you know, brutalizing and dominating the women around him. Yeah. I mean, it really, really is, you know, it's, it's kind of what's also like cracked, you know, this, this facade of it. Um, and just one thing that that power plant is a fracked gas power plant, and it's actually in Orange County, um, where a lot of our uh, produce comes from. Um, so something to think about. Um, but yeah, you know, um, and Alexandra mentioned this kind of like the, the cracking of that bubble in the media, um, you know, originally with this, this nursing home scandal. Um, but also you mentioned too, you know, that there's just been this groundwork, this kind of huge wall of protection, you know, including the IDC that the governor has, um, built up over the years that also we've been slowly chipping away at, you know, how important do you think it is that we, you know, have socialists in Albany now, how does that kind of fit into this ability to, to challenge Cuomo and like, what's going to be really necessary to hold him accountable right now? Because clearly he has gotten out of, you know, his best friends in jail right now, all these things, um, What's it going to take this time to actually get him out of power? Like with many things, an organized, sustained, statewide movement comprising people from many different uh, walks of life who speak with one voice about this. Um, it's It's not a given that he will, he certainly won't resign. I don't think that's in his DNA. Um... I, it's not a given that the legislature will impeach him. What he's hoping for is that Letitia James, who, to her credit, started chipping away at the Cuomo wall when she um, put out the nursing home report. Um, however, on the other side, also, on in some ways, does owe her election, her winning that primary, to Cuomo's support. So... What he's hoping for is that he can leverage his connection with her to draw out the investigation, get the media to focus on something else, and then come out with, you know, basically something like a second Moreland Commission, where he kind of curates what comes out of the investigation and hopes that the media will once again kind of let the let the Cuomo wall resume and go back in the bubble. And you know, it's our job to stop that. Yeah, I just want to uh, let listeners know we're going to be opening up the phone lines again. I'm going to ask Michael one more question before we do that. But that number, if you want to call in, um, I'm sure people have a lot of thoughts on this tonight is 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. So as folks are calling in, Michael, um, you know, you've worked in Albany and one of the messages I've really been hating coming out of this in defense from the Cuomo administration is, you know, well, he's a tough guy. You know, this is what it takes to get stuff done. Um, but abusive workplaces don't get stuff done. Um, can you just respond a little bit to this this attitude in Albany and how it actually prevents us from, you know, having a government that represents the working class? Absolutely. Um, I have witnessed sexual harassment in Albany, uh, even of sitting legislators by lobbyists, by other legislators, by random people. There is a culture in Albany that has been longstanding. There's something they call the Bear Mountain Compact, where anything that happens north of Bear Mountain didn't really happen. Um, And so there's this culture of everybody in Albany gathers together, figures out what the story is to tell everybody else, does whatever they want, tells the rest of the state what, what the talking points are, and 
for a long time, we didn't really have much choice as an electorate or as New Yorkers in terms of challenging that narrative, which is why, as your previous question suggests, it's so important to have those socialists in Albany because, you know, sometimes the Republicans will, uh, will whine and yell about things that Cuomo does, but they just don't have that same credibility, um, either with the people of New York because they're such an extreme minority or with the media. Um, for various reasons. Also, they're kind of acting in bad faith in a lot of ways. So some of the things they criticize him on are accurate, and some of them aren't. So it's kind of hard to sift. So having a alternate perspective that isn't just establishment Democratic, establishment Republican, sort of media establishment, is incredibly important in, in uncovering these things. Um, and it's just really um on one level i think it's it's a real step forward for our society that we're actually starting to take some of this seriously there's still so much more to do but you kind of get the feeling when you talk to albany people who have been there a while that this is just sort of the way they've always done it and the way they were raised to do it and the way that their mentors did it and the way that they're going to do it unless somebody stops them. Well, amen to being the people who are trying to stop them. Uh, do we have any callers on the line? Yes, let me put... First, we're going to find out if the people hung on from uh, 20 minutes ago. Oh, I think we've been pretty interesting. I think they will. Hello? Hi, you're live on WBAI. What is your uh, question and comment? Yeah, my my um comment and my statement is that there's always a remedy. This is why, thank God, we have the Constitution. And I don't know if you ever heard of a, a writ of Coronto. Okay, have you ever heard of a writ of Coronto? Okay. No. A writ of no. Coronto is activated by Article, Article I mean, um, Amendment 9. Okay, that gives the right to the people if they do not. And, and this is one of the things that you don't have to wait to the legislation impeach them. What this writ of Colorado does, if they try to use their office anytime against the, one of the people of the United States of America, you are allowed to use this writ of Colorado to unseat any elected official. Because these, they're not elitists, they are they are public servants. And there are remedies in, but we have a constitutional crisis and a lot of people don't know that. Thank God I was able to, you know, access these things when I went to court. But the thing being is, they are not kings or queens. This is why you have access to over the Colorado. Okay, these ladies could have went and filed over the Colorado because it has to be filed by one of the people of the United States of America. And it has to be filed by them. And if she is found out in court, he has to come, he has to find out in court that he did not have a constitutional um, jurisdiction to use his office. He cannot use his office and he has to leave office. Anybody has to just look it, look it up. Over the court round two, it's very false. And the thing being is, this is why we have a constitution. This is why 
Now, thank God, the Constitution lasts this long. It's because the um, the the signers of the Constitution they made sure. Well, thank you so much for uh, your call just now. Um, I think there's a lot in there. Uh, what I would like to pull out is the idea that these people are not kings and queens. These people are not special. They're not any different than you and I, except by virtue of their position. And we should feel entitled to hold them accountable, just like we hold each other accountable. I think that's really important. And um, yeah, thank you for calling in. And yeah, we've got some more listeners on the line. Um, Caller, you are now live on WBAI. What's your name? And a quick comment so we can get a couple more people in. All right. Anyone there? Or are we going to the next call? Hello? You hear me? Hi, Caller. You're live on WBI. We've got about a minute left, so if you can keep it quick. Okay, do you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Okay, here it is. Forget that caller with that uh, legal thing. uh, I'm going to defend the governor up to a point, okay? He's not going to resign. He's not going to be impeached. The socialist activating group here that you have ain't going nowhere with this thing. I'm not happy with this man. I don't like what he did, but I think overall he will survive, but he will not seek a, a fourth term. The other thing is this, and more important, he didn't kill 15,000 people, okay? We had a pandemic. How many families, how many people, how many socialists were willing to take these people in? Nobody called to take anybody in, okay? So if there's, there's no murderers here, it's just a sad, sad situation. The parents of these people, all of these families who lost these people, did anybody say, let me take them in? Of course not. Nobody did. They didn't want to take them in. So who's guilty here? In a way, we're all guilty, not just the governor, all of us. That's all. Thank you very much. You know, I don't think we've had the power that the governor has had. Um, We've not been instilling austerity budgets. Um, We've not been stopping Medicare for all in the different social structures that could have been there for these people. Um, And we've had a lot of comrades on this show who have... um, you know, done mutual aid and things and actually taken care of the community. Um, And so thank you so much, uh, Michael, for being on. Um, You've been listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM. Um, To connect with us after the show, you can email us at revolutions at NYC, um, nyc at gmail.com and find us um, on revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com or on Twitter at nyc.rpm. I'm Lisa Shi here with Michael Carter. Thanks so much for listening, um, and we'll see you all next week. See you then, New York. <laughs> <laughs>